This is the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. You really have to want it. I mean, if you really want something, you're going to take action. I don't care. You'll take action even without analyzing anything. You're listening to the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast, where we discuss tangible tips, tricks, and best practices for becoming financially free. The show is designed for people who want to either start real estate investing or for those who want to scale their real estate business. What's going on, everyone? This is Jonathan Farber, your host of the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. I hope you're all well and healthy. For any first-time listeners, thanks for being here. The goal of this show is to explore ways to become financially free through real estate or to increase passive cash flow through real estate. A little background on myself, I work in corporate America at a software company. My side hustle is real estate. I currently own eight rental units and looking to add more this spring. I have house hacked, bird, flipped, and done short-term rentals to name a few strategies. My current focus is 20 to 30 unit apartment buildings in Ohio and Kentucky. I love to network and learn. So if you'd like to connect further, feel free to find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, or BiggerPockets. Today, we have another awesome guest, Corey Binsfield. Corey is based in Duluth, Minnesota, and we first connected on BiggerPockets where he was a guest on the show. And I read his article in Forbes where they profiled him in business and real estate investing. A little bit about our guest. He's a buy and hold investor with a specialty in buying, rehabbing, renting, and refinancing, which is the strategy known as Burr investing. His early career goal was to acquire 10 duplexes, which he did quickly, and that led him to being financially free. He's a best-selling author and been featured in Forbes Business. He currently focuses on helping others become financially free or strong through real estate. The two things that stood out to me from this episode that I think can help you guys were one, how to snowball equity from rental properties to scale. At a certain point, he didn't need to use his own money anymore. And he talks about that in his strategy of buying, renting, and rehabbing, and then refinancing. But basically, he was putting money into the deals adding value to them. Then he was going getting bank appraised loans on them and pulling out all of his equity. And after a certain point, he didn't need to pull any of his own money into the deals anymore. And this happens with a lot of investors where you hit a certain point of scale, five deals, 10 deals, and you have enough equity that you, you can then go pull that out and buy other deals where you don't need to use your own money anymore for the most part. So that was really interesting. And I think you guys can benefit from some of the tangible ways that he did that. The second thing that stood out was how he found owner finance deals. So owner finance deals are deals that there is no bank involved. Basically, you pay the owner a down payment and then pay him or her the rest of the value over a period of time with interest. And this is great because usually it's a much easier process and you don't need to show this on your credit or uh, it doesn't affect your credit. You don't have to jump through all the hoops. So now if I can find any scenario where it's a, a seller finance deal, it's pretty much a home run for a lot of reasons, but uh, mainly just because it's easier, there's less fees and it doesn't show on your credit. Today's tangible tip is if you guys are big YouTube users, we've already talked about YouTube Red and why I think that's awesome. Uh, but another awesome feature, if you use YouTube for learning, is the transcript mode in YouTube. If you just play around with the um, settings on the bottom of the video or a couple of those little uh, button that has like a CC and a square around it, you can see all the captions for your videos that you're watching. And sometimes that helps if you're taking notes or you want to get a script or if you want to just grab something word for word. A lot of times what I do when I'm watching is I'm pulling something literally word for word that I'm then turning into a script. 
And sometimes it's easier just to copy and paste the whole uh, transcript that's already done. So I never knew that feature existed. And a friend of mine, Chris Montez, actually uses YouTube a lot. And he saw that they have the transcripts or captions built in uh, into the side there. And you can then copy and paste those or use them for whatever you want. So really uh, helpful if you use YouTube a lot. So that was today's tangible tip. Without any further ado, awesome episode today with Corey Binsfield. All right, Corey, welcome to the podcast. How you doing, John? I'm doing about as well as you can be amid a pandemic, so can't complain. Luckily, everyone's healthy. I feel good. And uh, the one thing I was actually thinking about yesterday was, you know, like there haven't been that many people who've just had the, the common cold. And I feel like if people started having that, they would just be, that's typical for this time of the year anyway, changing seasons, right. you know, people yep. get colds. But I was thinking like for all the people, if they would just get the common cold, that there'd be that much more panic going on anyway. I feel like it's either people are healthy or they have COVID. So all good by me. Uh, can't complain too much. How are things out by you in Duluth? I'm pretty quiet. It's when I come into the office, as uh, we were talking earlier, unfortunately, I'm considered essential business. So I have to come to the office all the time. But my office building, it's like a nine-story structure, a bunch of small businesses in here. And it is just, I actually love it. It's totally dead. It's like me, and then there's this accountant on the other floor, and he comes in, he, you tell he hasn't shaved in like a week, you know, but he's just doing taxes, and it's just me and him just kind of like laughing at each other, going, wow, this is crazy. So, yeah. like that old Chinese saying, may you live in interesting times, you know, it's both a curse and an opportunity we're, we're living in right now, so. Absolutely, yeah, it's hard to predict, but it seems like they're like any good or bad scenario, there's going to be some winners and losers. So, you know, for better or worse, it's just, right. it's tough to predict though. But um, yeah, so why don't we get into it? I'm sure that'll be part of today's discussion and we'll talk about, you know, what you're doing now and planning for the next couple of months as well amid all this uncertainty. But uh, do you mind just giving our listeners a background on uh, who you are and how you got into real estate? And then we'll, we'll dig into that story and probably bring it up to current. Sure. So my name is Corey Binsfield. I own two companies. One's called Structured Wealth Advisors, where I do uh, fee-based investment portfolio management, along with financial planning. And then back in uh, 1998, um, I started a little real estate side hustle. And back then, the goal was to buy one duplex a year over the next 10 years. And after uh, doing that, I basically uh, picked up the 10 properties within about eight years. And all of a sudden, after hitting my goal, I was kind of like, wow, this is kind of fun. And so then I decided to 10 exit. So now I've got over, I think, 120-something units spread across around 30 properties. Wow. So and then on the side, I do help um, my investment clients that want to get into real estate because I feel like it's a perfect hedge against the stock market, especially cash-flowing rentals. And um, so I've got a number of clients where I've helped them build their portfolios including this one guy that just kind of reminds me of me, he's a younger guy, but he's already, he surpassed my goal so quick, it was just crazy. But he ended up with, he's got about 40 units right now over the last 10 years. So wow. kudos to him, so. Very cool, okay, that's awesome. So I'm glad you said the original strategy was picking up two duplexes or duplex every year for yes. X number of years, because that's a strategy that I often hear when I, I feel like you go in phases with, with, with at least the people that are, are like the active W2 escape goal type people. Right. They just want to add a little bit of passive cash flow every year. They want to 
start to replace some of their income. They want to be invested. And I, I do hear that strategy a lot. It's maybe not even duplexes. I hear a lot of times people say, I just want to add one property a year. Right. And then I think they soon realize that that's probably the slowest way or that's probably the least likely way you'll ever become financially free trying to scale a single home portfolio, adding one per year. So when you were thinking that and then changed your strategy, I mean, how did you decide to change or what made you change or what made you think that at the beginning? In the beginning, um, one of these books I read was very instrumental. I forgot the name of it. I think it's like Buying One House at a Time by John um, Schaub. But anyways, I read that book along with, I've just always been an active student of real estate. Even when I was just dead broke, I was like, someday I'm going to own real estate. But I thought, in, in my mind, if I just bought one a year, it would allow me to learn the ropes. And I found that some people, if they scale too quickly, it kind of blows up on them. So in my, my original goal, going back to one a year, was simply just to supplement my investment business, kind of diversify it. Because when a bear market hits, you know, um, being that I'm fee-based financial advisor, my revenue basically plunges 30 to 50%. And so looking back, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm really happy. I did the one property a year at a time. And, and the reason why I focused on duplexes because I didn't want small multifamily. So it's like, you know, 10 duplexes is 20 units, but it was around that 10th property when I bought a fourplex, where I was kind of buddied up against the 10 loan limit. That's when I said, God, it's probably better now going forward because of course I changed my goal. I was like, I want more property. That's when I said, okay, no more single family, no more duplexes or fourplexes. I have to get into commercial properties, which is, you know, five units or higher. Mm -hmm. And as you're mentioning, if you're going to be in this in the long run, then you definitely want to scale more towards the five units or higher because you could definitely achieve your goals a lot quicker. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I mean, to each his own, right? Like whatever your time can be and your commitment, but one strategy I heard that I think I've, I've now aligned with more closely. And I, I think it makes sense for most people who are trying to scale a business or real estate business organically, organically. Um, I think someone, uh, I think Brandon Turner called it uh, the stack and the concept was just acquiring a property every year, but doubling the size. So you go one, yes. two, four, eight, and what I like about that strategy, especially for beginners who aren't quitting their jobs to go full time is at least on the side, you're building up this muscle, you're, you're building up this skill set that can grow in proportion to what you're trying to do. Instead of I, I see some people and they just they have the ability to take on bigger risk and take on bigger projects. They jump into a 20 unit, right? And it's their first deal. And sometimes it goes great. Sometimes it goes horribly. But I think the people if you do that stack method for five years as a beginner listening to this right now, you're going to become the person you need to be by the time you get to your 50th unit purchase because right. you've done the one that's 25, you know, so that strategy I resonate with a lot, but it sounds like, you know, to each his own, it's just interesting. So when you were acquiring that one through 10 property, how were you finding those deals and how are you financing those deals? Yeah. So the first one I picked up, it was a, an extremely distressed situation. So at the time I was, um, building up my investment advisory practice and revenue was okay, but being self-employed, I wasn't really bankable. And so what I ended up doing was I was looking for a for sale by owner and particularly one that was owner financed. 
because um, I'd already gone to a couple banks and they'd look at my tax return and say, yeah, well, you know, go make more money or start paying yourself a W-2 wage and then we'll be able to loan money to you. And so I ended up with uh, a distressed triplex. It was in, I mean, it was in such bad shape that when I showed my fiance it and I was all like proud of my purchase, I'm like, look, honey, we're buying this triplex. We're going to move in and we're going to do a house hack. And she was literally crying as she's looking at the property and me being the stupid guy, I just put my arms around her. I'm like, Oh honey, those are tears of joy. Right. And she's like shaking her head back and forth. She's like, no, <laughs> but um, yeah. So end result was, it was a you know little dumpy triplex. Uh, we lived in the middle unit and then I started fixing it up both the lower unit and the upper unit. And I didn't know what it's doing. Uh, fortunately I was able to hire some people. I was able to do the real basic stuff. But I basically turned that property around with the owner financing, and then I was able to refi out of it within about, I'd say, two years. I was able to get, uh, I actually had to go get a commercial loan because the business bankers liked me better than the regular folks doing conventional loans. So that one pretty much started my journey. And then after that, I did another house hack, which was just at that point, I was able to actually get a, a FHA loan and moved into another duplex. And then from there, I was able to start pulling equity out of these various properties and start building up um, the, the 10 duplex portfolio. And mainly just by stripping equity and buying another one, you know. I mean, during that period, it was like 1998, all the way up to about uh, 2006. And the lending was pretty decent. You could go, back then you could throw a credit line on a, an income property and then you know, you get a credit line for $25,000, dollars or $40,000, and I'd use that credit line to go buy another property. And so that's how I basically scaled it. It was completely internal, used cash flow from rents and just built it that way. So, yeah. Are, is there anything that someone needs to think about or be careful of when they're trying to get creative with financing or try to not max out their DTI? Like you mentioned the 10 property limit. Right. Can you just elaborate on why you had to think about that or, or what that is or what like DTI maximums are? Because I think some people, they aren't sure why they aren't getting approved for loans that they apply for. And it sounds like you were being very tactical and creative about making sure you were funded and that you were lendable when you started getting up to those higher number of loans. Yeah, you actually bring up a great point because ideally when you're buying these properties, number one, they have to cash flow. And so and that's where the DTI um, comes into play. Because as long as the property is cash flowing, you want to have, realistically, um, there's a term out there called debt coverage ratio, where they look at your loan amount and your rents. And you want to make sure that basically it's 1.25 or higher, meaning that you know your rents, um, after all expenses, cover more than 25% of the mortgage payment. And so... I did have a really good lender early on that told me about this debt coverage ratio number and what they're specifically looking for. And as a result of him, whenever I would hone in on a purchase, I'd make sure I'd be hitting that number so that, as you had mentioned, I become loanable down the future. And so as I built a portfolio, realistically, every single property was running, you know, 1.25 in the beginning, and then I'd be able to get it up to maybe 1.4, maybe 1.5 on the debt coverage ratio. 
-hmm. And typically, as I built the portfolio, I just walked into the bank, they'd run my numbers, I had a little spreadsheet with all the rents, taxes and insurance, you know, and then in one column was at that debt coverage ratio. And I just remember a lot of the bankers were like, whoa, this is like, awesome. It's like, how much money are you looking for? And so, but you still had to put down, you know, 10, 20, 25% down. So it wasn't easy, but I felt I was a, definitely a lot, I was easier to work with than some of these other landlords that come in with just a pile of paperwork and the lenders were just kind of like, okay, what's your debt coverage ratio? Like, what's that? You know? And so. Yeah, 100%. I think that's a really good point. And I think that's something that for anyone that's listening to this right now, and maybe they're, they're a true beginner, meaning they haven't done a deal yet. And I know, I remember when I was starting out, the banking side of things and the lending side of things was such a scary or unknown conversation. It, just because it's not taught anywhere, you're talking to these quote unquote bankers, sometimes they can make you feel odd or even bad about your situation if you've right. done something wrong. It's kind of like when you go to the doctor and you know he's guilting you after you've done something. Oh yeah. Kind of like this, that was definitely in my mind something that prevented me from going in and just getting started for a little while. But some advice I give to anyone that's trying to start out right now, if you think you're ready to at least start taking action and you think that's the part that's holding you back, you can always get quote unquote pre-approved for a loan or Definitely. a bank can tell you how much you can get a loan for based on your financial situation. Even from a quick snapshot glance, if you tell them how much you make, how much debt you have, they can run your credit. It's not the biggest deal in the world if they do, but I'd say if you're more serious, they can run it, but they can give you an idea of what type of loan you can go out and get. So you at least for most people, I think that's the way that they uh, can get past being stuck, which is they find out the type of property they're able to buy. So then they can go out and look for that type of property. Exactly. Is that yeah. like what you were doing or kind of thinking about? Yeah, I did have another banker where I basically, I'd, I'd come to him and I'd say, all right, based on my current financial situation, what is the, to, what would be the maximum loan I could get and what type of property should I be targeting? And so that I was doing that even after one, two or three properties. Right. And then the other thing you want to consider is this. Most loan officers are just, they're salespeople. And so they want you to get the loan, but what they have to do is sell your portfolio or your, let's call it your loan, your underwriting file. They have to sell it to the bank and to the underwriting committee. And this becomes really important with commercial loans when you're looking at, you know, five units or higher. So what you want to do is position your finances. You want to have like really good credit. You want to have cash reserves. You want to have a really strong debt coverage ratio. And if you can make that bankers or the loan officer's job just super easy, he can just walk into the underwriting committee and say, this guy's solid. I've already worked with him or he's a new guy, but he looks promising, but check out this guy. He's, he's amazing. And that's really how you get approved. So the loan officer sometimes will tell you things that, they basically can't do, which I've learned a lot in the past. Mm. Um, but if you're, if you're on top of your game and you make sure that's super easy for the loan officer to sell your position to the loan committee, then you're fine. You're going to get the loan. Yeah. 100%. That's, unfortunately that only comes with experience. So. Yeah. Well, that's such a good point though, because I made a, a, a video about this last week because I was just so shocked by the difference in response. I, it'd been a, a while since I'd, I'd gone for an owner occupied loan, right. um, which I was calling on. And I called 
four different banks and all four gave me four different answers. Yep. And I was just thinking to myself, if I was just calling that one bank, I would run with what they told me is that's the answer. And I would either be happy or demoralized if it met or didn't meet my needs. But calling four banks, I guess that's the other thing that I found interesting, especially at the beginning, is that banks are different. They're different businesses. Some of them have the exact same guidelines that have to be the same on every loan, but some of them can be different by type of loan that they give out or type of bank or lender they are. So right. I guess I would love to dig into with you. We haven't really talked about it that much on the podcast in general is types of lenders and why you pick certain lenders over others or what type of lenders you recommend for people. So at the beginning, were these small local banks, what type of lenders were they for you? Yeah. So when I first started out, I used the big box lenders. So, you know, the Wells Fargo's chases of the world and my first relationship was mainly with Wells Fargo. And as a result of them, I discovered in the beginning, I really didn't know this, but I discovered they were probably the toughest lender out there to work with because they just have the other parameters and they want some basically simple. And if you deviate at all from their little, their grid, okay, then they're basically going to turn you down. But at the time I had a really good loan officer that was working with investors and he knew how to position my file to get approved with Wells Fargo. Um, after I had four properties, I went back to him and said, okay, I've got another deal going. And he's like, well, we have a limit on investor loans. So you have to find a new bank. And I was kind of shocked. I'm like, oh, I guess I'll go find another bank. So then I found another bank that was a lot smaller. So this would be like your local or your regional bank. And after, before I found them, I had to shop like three or four. And kind of like what you're saying, you have to call around and figure out which banks um, like to work with real estate investors. Because I have discovered, like you were saying, that there are a number of banks that just don't. It's just not in their wheelhouse. And so once I found these local regional banks, that's when things started to take off or I was able to basically get even more loans. But back then I was still doing the, the straight conventional Fannie Freddie loans. And I noticed once I got up to the 10, well, after about five properties, things started to get a lot more complicated with them. The underwriting was getting bogged down. And by the time I hit my 10th property, which is, you know, once again, a, another primary residence slash house, house hack, uh, that, that last deal was 2007. And that was probably the worst underwriting I ever went through. It took just took about 60 days and it was just ugly. I was just like, I told myself I would never get a conventional loan again. I don't care what my rate is on my current loans. And so, and then after that, of course, that's when I started going into the commercial area, which God, night and day, it's so easy. So I do want to get into that because that, I think a lot of beginning investors wonder what's the difference between residential and commercial. But for someone that's starting out right now, maybe they've done a deal and maybe they, they're looking to do their first deal. Maybe it's going to be a house hack. Let's say they're going to replicate right. what, what you did. What advice do you have for them as far as what type of lender to go with? Uh, credit union, bank, big box, you know, I would mortgage lender. There's so many options. There are. I would avoid the big banks. Looking back, at the way I did it. Um, I'd still use conventional financing because that's considered the golden ticket of financing. You know, you, you cannot get those terms. It's 30 years, it's fixed, 
I don't care what you do. If you lose your job, they can't take that mortgage away from you. Okay. And so focus on the conventional loans first. All right. Um, if you're married and your spouse works, she can get another 10 loans as well. Okay. Assume you guys both qualify separately as like separate entities. Um, and then I would definitely focus, I would start your search with just the small local banks in your area. Because as you build a relationship with a small local bank, they tend to, they're, they're a lot easier to work with. They actually appreciate that you have, you know, 50,000 in cash sitting in their bank. Mm -hmm. And they use that as part of the underwriting appeal, even if it's a conventional loan. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, the big banks, they're just, they can turn the switch off in seconds. Like I saw last week, Chase just said, all right, everybody, we're raising the credit score to 700 and we're tightening the restrictions at 20% down. And guess what? That's the way it is. Good luck, everybody. So that's how the, the giant banks operate. Okay. And so... Yeah, going back at that. And then I did work with some mortgage brokers in the beginning. Um, at this point, I haven't worked with one in a long time because I really value a relationship with a local banker. So it's something I'll probably have to look into um, within the next probably six to 12 months now because I am having difficulty uh, refinancing my conventional loans. Because uh, as we had mentioned before, um, my tax return and portfolio has become almost too complicated for conventional lenders. So I'm looking to find a good mortgage broker that understands uh, real estate investors. Yep. No, those are great explanations. Cause I think so many people, they, one, they're, they're just not sure. I mean, it, uh, my only question on that, and maybe you'll dig back into it when you um, talk to and start researching mortgage brokers is I think that has become like now for most investors, the, the tune that you want to find the smaller banks, you want to find the local people to that area. Cause one, the, the other thing I find that no one really talks about, they won't let you buy a bad deal. Yes. You know, they they are point. invested in that area and yep. they know that area. The big banks have no clue. They're just, they're passing you on to the next person. Like right. I'm having such a bad experience with Quicken loans on one of my refis right now. I mean, I've just basically vouched. This is the last loan I'm going to do with a big box <laughs> lender. Yep. And I've started building relationships now with the smaller ones. But I also feel like, again, for a beginner who needs a little bit more of that supporting team, having a bank locally, they will help them make, they will make them feel better about buying whatever deal they're saying they're doing, either saying it's good or bad or this neighborhood's good or bad because they know it, they're local. You know, oh, yeah. So they can talk to it. I mean, a great example right now is that, you know, that PPP, loan, the Paycheck Protection Program. And as soon as that came out, I was getting these little alerts on Wells Fargo. It's like, apply for the PPP loan, you know? And I'm still with Wells Fargo because I love their online banking. But outside of that, that good. to me, they're, I call them the Death Star. You know, they're just like right out of Star Wars, Darth Vader. But um, unless you're like a mid-level client where you've got a portfolio of $500 million in real estate, which they call mid-level, you know? And so... But going back to uh, this PPP program, I was looking at that and I immediately called my local bank, just a little, you know, a little tiny regional bank. And I said, what do you think about this PPP loan? Are you taking applications? He's like, oh yeah, glad you called. I could get you one in right now. And I'm like, really? So then I sent him the info and I was funded within two weeks. And then I read in the news about the big box banks. All these people are getting turned down by the loan because they don't have time to process them. Um, once again, not this is happening with all the banks, but I did notice once again, Chase, 
basically sent out alerts to all their small business customers saying, hey, you know what? Um, we're really backed up right now, so don't even try applying with us. Even if you have an application right now, you might want to call your small regional bank. So this is, this is really what goes on with the big box banks. If your portfolio or your loan is super easy, they'll take it. You know, They might give you no closing costs, which is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. um, but if you go with a small regional bank, they're going to work with you and they're going to push that file through. 100%. Like, I don't want to be just bashing quick and loans on here, but again, big banks and whatever, like I can't get a call back. I can't text the person yeah. that I would have a relationship with at a bank that I know would be returning my call or texting me back or just responding. Oh, I got a text at like 10 at night from my guy in the PPP loan. He's like, Oh, I, I need you to change your payroll report. There's a new report that came out through ADP and I just heard about it. Can you send me the updated one? And so that, you know, I get a text at 10 at night. What banker texts you at 10 at night, you know? And right. then that morning, boom, I send it in and we're off to the races. And, that, and the cool. whole time we're doing this loan, I was just like, this can't be right. I'm like, I'm just going to try it. This is the easiest loan ever I've ever applied for. And he explained how it worked. And I was like, well, I'm going to try to get some money for payroll. You know, why not? You know? Yeah, so. absolutely. It makes total sense. So, I'm glad we, we talked about that. I just want to dig back into, I guess, your story and your transition a little bit more um, because I think what you did is a very, very practical. It's one of my favorite ways talking to investors to get into real estate and then grow portfolio and then be on your path to financial freedom and true real estate investing. So for the, for the listener out there who maybe hasn't really done any real estate deals yet, I think oftentimes they're concerned or stuck in this habit loop of doing a lot of research and taking very little action. Right. So how do you think about doing research versus taking action or what advice would you give to someone that is maybe a little analysis paralysis right now? They're doing research, listening to podcasts, but they just haven't taken the leap and they haven't gotten started in their business yet. I would say it's a tough, you, it's, I think how to overcome an analysis paralysis is you really have to want it. I mean, if you really want something, you're going to take action. I don't care. You'll take action even without analyzing anything. I mean, so you have to be hungry for it. And when I was doing it, I was hungry. I wanted a deal. I was, you know, I couldn't get a, a normal bank loan. So I was specifically looking for something that would fit my profile, which was owner financing. And I just started driving for dollars. I was literally knocking on doors. I was sending out letters and I was just driving through the neighborhoods on properties that I thought would be great from a rental standpoint in terms of affordable neighborhood. There's college students there, there's young professionals and so on. But yes, I had analyzed real estate every which way, but while I was analyzing stuff, I was still taking action, even though I didn't have a lot of money and I knew I had to find a for sale by owner deal. After that deal, I just, once again, while I'm researching stuff, um, I was still taking action. I was like mm -hmm. knocking on doors. I mean, I would say 80% of my deals have never been on the market just because wow. I don't like, I do not want to compete with anybody on MLS, nor do I want to compete are compete now with uh, on these multifamily deals with that 
broker that's got the pocket listing. I want to go mm -hmm. directly to whoever owns that apartment building and say, hey, if you ever consider selling, give me a call. And then you just stay in touch with them, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you got to ask yourself, if you're just analyzing, 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 if you haven't pulled the trigger within a year, just give up. Go invest in the stock market. I mean, I'm serious. It's like, why are you wasting all this time? Or start a small side hustle. Consider something different. Because there's something in your gut that's saying, I can't do this. I can't do this. It's like, listen to your gut. You know? mm, that's a good, you know, it's interesting because a year is a lot of time. Like if you're putting, if you're devoting a year of energy into anything, that's a good, that's a good rule of thumb. Even like if you're devoting a year of time and energy into something, there should be some yield. There should be some outcome right. or result of it. That could just be, or, and again, everyone's different, but you could set a time limit that if, unless you're trying to do something that's unreasonable, like I right. want to be a millionaire within a year, that's unreasonable. I mean, in most cases, but yeah. maybe, but if it's, I want to acquire one property in three months and I have financial means, there is no excuse to not be able to get that done. I totally with the agree. resources out there today. You know, yeah. if you're, if you're taking steps, you just need to take action at that point. I mean, all the information is out there. It's, it's become so accessible and simplified. So and kind of like what you're saying is like one of your steps is go call a banker and get pre-qualified and say, okay, I'm pre-qualified now. And I can get a loan up to, I don't know, 250000 whatever. Or if you're on the East Coast or West Coast, I can get a loan up to, you know, $2 million, which God, I don't know how you guys do it. But, <laughs> but just go get pre-qualified. And then right. now you narrow your focus down and go, okay, this is what I got to look for. <clears throat> and then start looking for those deals. 100%. You can surf the MLS, whatever. I mean, okay, go do that. Go to open houses, call the realtor, the listing agent, whatever. That's taking action. But you, you still got to put in the offer, you know? And there's nothing scary about putting the offer. <clears throat> the first one's the scariest. <clears throat> but yeah. realistically, you can get out of an offer. It's not like, you know, you're stuck with that for the next 60 days. It's like, you can just back out based on something as simple as an inspection. Let's or just talk about that real quick, because again, that's something I, the goal with this show is to just check every box that could right. be kind of your barrier to entry. And for someone that's looking at some real estate, I, I mean, for their first deal, I know most people are looking at that offer. If that gets accepted, they're in a state of panic because oh, they think scary. they're tied yeah. to something. And they also have that feeling of, wow, no one else wanted this. Now I got it. You know, like you almost want that social proof, like putting yeah. an offer out there. I tell people it's the weirdest thing. Like one part of you wants it to get accepted. The other part doesn't, because if it gets accepted, you're thinking, am I the sucker that just overpaid for this? So to your point though, can you just explain maybe some of the ways someone can feel more secure when they make a first offer, if they have, can put contingencies in place? If you put in an offer and all of a sudden you see other people going, ah, crap. You know, they're like, I wanted that deal. Then you know you've got a really strong property, okay? Uh -huh. And you might hear it through the grapevine or some other investors and they'll be mad at you because it's like, you offered what for that property? And then, so that's one way to tell, okay? The other way to tell is, obviously, if you've done a little bit of your homework, just make sure it cash flows. I mean, it might only cash flow 200 you know, $250 a month, but run the cash flow based on all variables, which means not only the cash flow after rents and expenses, but look at the principal mortgage or the principal paid on the mortgage. 
a lot of people don't even talk about that, but if you start, if you have like 10 properties and out of those 10 properties, you know, your principal pay down on loans is $25,000 a year. That's pretty cool. Okay. And then you get the little tax benefit, which is, you know, when you're first starting out, you're not a real estate professional, but realistically, um, that rent is tax-free. So you're getting tax-free income there. And mm -hmm. so if you analyze all parts of the deal and then throw in appreciation if you want for fun, but do not count on appreciation, especially in this market, because we're coming off a really strong market. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can tell you there was a period where after the financial crisis, my duplexes did not go up for 10 years. They just sat there stagnant. And mm -hmm. I was just scratching my head going, this does not make any sense in the world. But now they finally pop again and they're starting to go up. Mm -hmm. So, and then going back to, you know, if you're super scared, you can get out of the deal. You just say, you know, you have an inspection done and based upon the inspection, you just say, you know what? I don't like it. I thought that roof was 10 years old. That what you, that's what you told me. But according to my inspector, he says it's 15 years old and it's going to cost me an additional 10 or $15,000. I mean, you can always find something if you really want to get out of the deal. Mm -hmm. um, just be careful if you do that too many times, the realtors are not going to be happy with you and the word will get around town that you basically don't follow through on your commitments. Mm -hmm. So 100%. That's really but good advice. But if you're in a big city, who's going to find out, right? Yeah, I'm 100%. in a small town, you know? So right, right, right. I have to be careful when, I'm deal, when I do deals. 100%. But even to that point, I think doing it once or twice even, I mean, if, if there's justified reason, I don't think anyone will hold it against you if right. you're not comfortable with it. And for most realtors, I found, again, if you're not wasting their, their time and you're not doing it just to back out, they understand. They yeah. don't want you to buy something that you're going to regret and then never work with them again. You know, they right. want more opportunity. So totally agree on that. Um, so, so really good there. That was, that was great how you just walked walk through the steps there. So I know we kind of just jumped into your start but and then the 10 10 units that you acquired or 10 properties that you acquired on the the way up there um can you maybe just bring us up to speed on what i guess your business has turned into what happened next after that you know where you are today yeah so after the 10 properties so basically it worked out to be almost like 24 units because i had a fourplex in there and a triplex unfortunately um i was married by that point and my wife was just didn't like the rentals at all. <laughs> and so that ended gracefully. And then um, that it was after the divorce, I was kind of stuck there in a little period where I couldn't buy anything because qualifying for stuff was more difficult because I had child support and I was paying an, an extra mortgage that wasn't a house that I owned. And so it was, it was pretty gnarly for about a year or so. But um, after that, um, during that period when I couldn't buy anything, that's when I really started honing in on the next stage of my growth. And that's where I started looking into five units or higher. And so once again, this is a tip for people. If you can't afford to buy something right now, that doesn't mean you just sit on your duff and just, you know, go on bigger, bigger pockets blog. You actively do research. You try to come up with your next strategy on how you're going to pivot. And then once you have the means, then you go ahead and implement. And so that's pretty much what I did. So for about a year and a half, I couldn't buy stuff. Maybe it was about two years. Mm -hmm. And then I bought my first six plaques. And that was, that was the game changer. Because I'd read about in these books about these things called cap rate 
and doing value add and you know turning around the property and I thought it'd be really cool to find a deal like that and when I found that deal which was a, a six unit property it was like textbook example the rents were too low the place was in pretty rough shape uh, the tenant base was terrible and I basically went in there cleaned house um, got way better tenants got the rent collections up to 100 percent and within three years, I built probably uh, just probably about 80,000 in value added equity. And from there, um, while I owned that six unit, I was knocking on doors across the street for some other multis. And that's when I picked up a 13 unit and then I picked up another eight unit. And pretty soon it was like the goal, the original goal back to going one property a year being a duplex. Then it turned to one property a year that's five units or higher. And that's kind of how I basically 10X the portfolio. Mm -hmm. That's really, really yeah. interesting. It's really cool what you did. I, I love the part you talked about, the value add, and you became a little bit of a different type of investor when you're thinking about the property differently about adding value and the way that those properties are um, appraised basically yeah. either compared to comps or compared to uh, rent income. So can you just talk to that a little bit for someone that that's not too familiar with how properties are appraised or how you can add value? Oh, sure. So one of the problems with the single family all the way up to four unit space is they're appraised on sales comps. And so it doesn't matter how much value add you put into a, like a fourplex or a single family if all the sales comps in that area are dropping, you're still, you're not gonna make money, okay, from an appreciation standpoint. That was a hard lesson I learned on my 10 property portfolio. And so once I got in the commercial space, which is five units or higher, that's when I discovered I had just so many little levers I could pull to raise the value on the property. So if you look at a standard, you know, small multifamily deal, they're gonna look at, your gross rents, subtract the expenses, and you get this thing called your net operating expenses. So basically it's all the cash flow that's left over to pay the mortgage and put some money in your pocket. So that net operating income or NOI is the key metric you need. Because then you take that NOI and then they use that as part of this formula called a cap rate, which kind of like a PE ratio on a stock, okay? But um, take the cap rate and you can't, they really don't publish these things called cap rates, but you can get a general idea by looking at other properties and what they sold for. And once you've got that cap rate number nailed, then what you can do is start pulling the levers to create value. So let me give you an example. Sometimes you buy a property where people are like, I can't believe Corey paid that amount of money for that property. Cause they're like, the cap rate was a six, okay? Now, cap rates are weird. It's like the higher the cap rate, the higher cash flow, but it could also be more distressed. The lower the cap rate, the lower the cash flow, but that typically means you're getting like a class A style property. Okay. So in my scenarios, I could buy something, let's say at a six cap where everyone's like, Corey's crazy, but then I saw value in that property. And the reason why the cap rate was so low is because they had low rents. Um, Let's just say they had the wrong tenant base in there. But by turning that cap rate around, okay, and raising the rents and getting better tenants in there, I was able, I, I was able to create 
let's say go from net operating income, let's say 50,000 a year, all the way up to say 75,000 a year. And then you go back on that same cap rate that you bought it for, and all of a sudden you got a value that's maybe 100,000, 150 or 200,000 or more. And that's just mm -hmm. a game changer. And if you can find the right properties and find tired landlords or whatever, you can just, it's, it's crazy how simple it is. I mean, it's simple, but it's not easy because the execution is key. You have to be able right. to execute this strategy. Like I just did one that took, let's see, it took basically two years to turn around this property. And it was just, it was hell. Every time, every wall that we touch, we would open it up and discover just major plumbing issues or major electrical issues. Or it's like, I can't believe they basically sheetrocked over the ceiling again and again. So there's like five layers of sheetrock on the ceiling. And then you open it up and you see why. And it's like, oh my God. But so that guy took about two years, you know, to turn around. But now it's fully stabilized as of literally this month. And I'm talking to the commercial banker, not those crazy conventional loan bankers. And the banker just got, we just got the appraisal and the banker's like, all right, two weeks to closing. Where should, when should we close? And I'm like, eh, give me a, let's do three weeks. Cause I'm kind of busy right now. Mm. But it was like, boom, boom, boom. Got the, it was just, it was so easy, you know, but the yeah. two years is difficult. It was all about the implementation and just grinding through one unit at a time, you know, and right. turning around the tenants. So That's cool though, that, one, you were able to get it done, but two, you talked about something that you just, you can't do with another type of asset, at least in the residential or single family space, you can't improve or increase the value by making the improvements or raising rents. It just doesn't work that way. Right. It's just based off comp. So by finding stuff that's maybe operationally inefficient or mismanaged or areas that you can improve for lower costs and then increase rents, you're really, it's like, it's like a um, very disproportionate multiplier of your money that you probably can't get anywhere else. And then uh, you don't have to sell the property. Obviously you right. can do a refinance or a HELOC. I know you talked about some of those before we jumped on um, as a way to pull some of your funds out of the, pull some of your equity out of the property, convert it to cash, and then you can use it for other things. Yeah. I'm a big fan of buy and hold. I'm kind of like Warren Buffett. I've had probably my career probably sold four properties and I look back and I'm like, what was I thinking? You know? <laughs> so, yeah. So try to, I mean, clearly you want to sell something if it's not performing and it just doesn't fit inside the portfolio and where you want to be over the long term. But I'm so glad I'm just been buying and holding because now we're in another financial crisis and my real estate's just rocking and rolling. And my mm -hmm. investment business is just getting crushed. You know, revenues yep. are down 35% right now. It's just like, I'm like, I'm fine. You know, I got my rent. So all my tenants have paid in April. I'm pretty excited. So. Right, right. A hundred percent. So it's yeah. a good insurance buffer with that. Can you just talk to, because I think some people might be hearing this and they're thinking, well, how are you getting funds out of your property if you've never sold them? So can you just talk to the strategies of extracting equity from properties oh, sure. and why you like the idea of holding and continue to cash flow and then pulling your equity out? All right. So this Nowadays, this mainly works with commercial properties, so five units or higher. It's really tough to pull money out of a basically a single family duplex or fourplex on a conventional loan. Um, so we're just gonna focus on that area. And so once you buy the property, get it up and running, you've got to exactly where you want, 
where you want it to be in terms of cash flow. You've done even like a life value add, okay? Once you get these commercial loans, you can go back to the bank and say, okay, I bought the thing at three, you know, I'll just give you a, an example on the one I just did. So I bought it for 325. I put in about probably, it's not the best deal I've done by far, but I put in maybe 75,000. Um, during that time period, the principal is being paid down over the last three years. <clears throat> the, uh, I had a seller second on it, okay? And so now I'm taking out the seller second. I'm, I got the appraisal up to 415,000, even though I bought it for 325. Um, yes, I put in a lot of dough, but now I'm able to pull out whatever I put in, whatever I said, 80, 85,000, put that back in my pocket. And then just, I'm just gonna set that side in, in reserves because with this COVID situation, um, who knows how long this will last. And if it doesn't last long, that's fine. I got a big cash buffer. Um, if it does last a while, then I do have a cash buffer that I'll definitely have to tap just to stay afloat. But going back to the refi strategy, in this particular scenario, you know, bought the property three years later, I refinance out. It's kind of like that burst strategy they talk about on bigger pockets, but you're doing it on a bigger scale. It's like, don't do a burr on a duplex or a single family. Why not burr five units or higher? You know, go mm. burr a 10 unit deal or a 20 unit deal. You know, I mean, that's, that's really the game changer. And this money you pull is just, it's tax free. It's beautiful, you know? 100%. I mean, yeah. I'm gonna, it's just, it's crazy how much, and fortunately with all the money I've pulled out, I don't pull out the money and go on a vacation. You know, <laughs> I don't raise my standard of living. I have a 15 year old suburban that blows blue smoke whenever I start it. I love that truck. It's my, my favorite truck. My kids just groan when they see it. They're like, dad, you look like a bum. I'm like, I don't care. You know, I, I have a nice truck for, you know, if I have to look nice. But yeah. I drive that old beat-up Suburban. I do showings in it. The residents probably think I'm just this poor, broke landlord. And that's the way I want it, you know? But use that money that you pull out and make sure you go back and reinvest it in the portfolio and buy more property. It's just, and then you just refi again, buy another property, raise your cash flow. And next you know, you're just swimming in cash flow. 100%. And the thing that people may often overlook is that when oh, you, you have to bring this up too. when oh. you refi go back your debt coverage ratio make sure you're conservative on the refi make sure that when you do the refi you can justify it with enough cash flow so that when the loan comes due five seven ten years from now you can go back to the bank and they look at it and go oh yeah you're fine we're not going to pull the mortgage from you that's the one risk you have with commercial loans. They can pull that mortgage and shut you down. Huh. Is there anything that someone could do to prevent that or be more careful with it? Yeah, just be careful on the refi. And my rule of thumb is keep your loan to value at 70% or low or less. So mm -hmm. the way a commercial loan will work, especially with these small regional banks, they're typically a 20-year amortization. And there's a five-year balloon on there. Okay. Now the balloon sounds really scary, but think about what happens. If you got a 20 year loan, you're making the payments. The principal payments are fairly large on 20 years versus 30 years, okay? So by the time you hit that five year mark for the, when the balloon is due, okay? 
your principal is paid down enough where your loan to value, let's say you started at 80%, it's down to like 70%. Hopefully in that five years, your cash flow has increased as well. Okay. And then what they're going to do, is going to make you go get another appraisal, make sure the value is still there. And then if the value is still there, they're just going to renew the loan. It's not like they say, give us all your money in five years. They're just going to renew it. Mm-hmm. But what a lot of people, and this is, this is huge right now. A lot of people are going to get into trouble. Okay. Especially if they're on interest only loans and they're picking up those loans three, five years ago, because as these balloons come due, they're going to go, Oh crap. I haven't paid down any of my principal. I've lost, you know, some tenants. My rents are down. COVID is just screwing up all my finances. And so who knows, we might see some pretty decent multifamily deals within I'd say the next six to 18 months. It's too soon to tell right now because people haven't felt the pain yet. We got mm-hmm. some pain coming. All mm-hmm. right, hopefully we don't, but if we get a lot of pain, then we're gonna have some nice little opportunities where you can buy properties, you know, 10, 20% discounts from where they were, you know, let's say this year. So. Sure, 100%. Before we move to the show, uh, wind down, I, I would love to actually just dig into that for a sec because a lot of people out there right now are thinking, what should I be doing during COVID? And should I be prospecting for deals? How should I be prospecting for deals? Um, knowing that there might be a big pool of inventory of distressed owners coming on the market. So let me ask you, how are you prospecting right now or thinking about being prepared for when that wave comes? I think it depends on where you're looking. Okay. I don't believe there's going to be a foreclosure crisis in the single family space because the the government backstops are huge right now. Back in 08, 09, they didn't have a forbearance program where you click a button and you don't have to make a mortgage payment for the next three months. I remember at the time going, God, I wish the banks would come out with a program where if no one had to make their payments for the next couple of months, we would be fine. But all the banks are going under then. They couldn't afford to do that then. Okay. So I don't necessarily think we're going to, we won't see a crisis like 08, 09. That was like the Great Depression. Okay. And that was a banking crisis. That was a money crisis. There was no money. Okay. Right now we got lots of money. The banks are well capitalized. I do think there's a lot of people in the small multifamily space, let's say between five, all the way up to say 250 units, which technically that's not small 250 units, but there's a lot of people that have been syndicating. There's a lot of people that don't have a lot of skin in the game on these syndicated deals. If they went out and got interest only loans on their mortgages, okay, because they thought that's the greatest thing ever. These are 30 year amortizations, which means one on interest only loan, you haven't paid any principal. Let's say even, you know, you did a, a regular loan where you're paying principal. These people, if, if their occupancy drops by a certain amount, they're gonna, the loan covenants are gonna kick in. And once these loan covenants kick in, they're gonna be in a world hurt. So from my action standpoint, I think the best place to start would be right now, you gotta start looking for distressed owners. You got to drive by properties and, and there's, there's going to be distressed people in the single family space. Don't get me wrong, but look for properties, you know, that just in the past you would drive by and they look spectacular. And now they're starting to look a little run down. The garbage is starting to overflow. You know, we haven't hit grass season yet here, but maybe the mow, they're not mowing the lawns. Uh, the, you can kind of tell there's more junk. The tenant mix has kind of changed. 
the place might look kind of empty-ish. Mm-hmm. Those are the people you want to contact and say, hey, you know, um, I'm an investor. I'm just curious if you ever consider selling, give me a shout. Some mm-hmm. people will say, bug off, I, you're an idiot, you're a vulture, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I'm just, but other people might be open and say, yeah, give me a call in a couple months, I'll let you know. You know? Yeah, right. At but least yeah, they'll so know now, yes. Yeah, I don't think now is the time to like jump in, you know, 100%. So I think there's going to be some pain ahead. But it's definitely a time where you just have to start looking, build the relationships, have, it's almost like, you know, it's that whole funnel approach. You're going to contact a ton of people, but maybe only one or two want to sell. And so you have to contact people now, be prepared. And then while you're doing that, get your finances in order, make sure you can qualify. Yep. 100%. All right. Awesome. Corey, you ready for the show wind down? Some rapid fire sure. question. All right, cool. Um, any groups or um, networking associations or just people you like to actively make sure you surround yourself with? Uh, you hear it oftentimes. You want to be the average of the five you're with and you're doing a lot of cool stuff. So just curious. I'm in a small town and I'm in kind of a weird space where there's not like these big networking groups where I can associate with, you know, multimillionaires. Mm-hmm. And so what I try to do is there's kind of like a smaller group of investors that invest in obviously real estate investors, if you will. And so I try to kind of, I wouldn't say we directly network, but we're constantly running into each other or we'll call each other periodically, ask about certain deals. And all those people fortunately are worth way more than me. So I value their opinion. And so I would say those are the people I tend to reach out to as well as I've got, I consider like my online networkers. I listen to a lot of podcasters. Um, I read a lot of books. Um, I go on a lot of blogs and I just try to look for the, people that are actually doing it versus just kind of the scammy salesy people that say they're gurus, but they're not. I like looking at, you know, people that say, yeah, I actually own on my own a hundred or 500 or a thousand units. And this right. is my company. Yeah. Those are the people I kind of gravitate toward. 100%. Cool. Um, do you have any system or thought process or time management philosophy as far as how you like to plan your weeks and your days if you like to do certain uh, activities certain times pretty much software runs my schedule so in my investment business um i've got a crm that basically tells me you know what tasks are ahead for the day what i have to do for the next week two weeks three or four weeks and then on the real estate side i've got this program it's called appfolio uh, property management and that thing kind of drives um, my, my schedule as well. And having the right technology and tools in place allows me to basically, you know, that's how I've been able to scale. It's just me, my assistant, and then I've got a bunch of independent contractors, but mm-hmm. I'm my own property management company, you know, so that's, those are probably the most important pieces in my business. And then I love my iPhone and I, I know this sounds totally old school, but it's got that little note app on there and I'm just constantly jotting down notes there. And then my, my philosophy is if it's not on the schedule, it doesn't happen. So even with my kids, like, dad, you told me, you know, you're going to bring me to whatever Julia's house at, and I'm like, yeah, but it wasn't on the schedule. And so if it's not on schedule, I can't bring you to your friend Julia's house. Right. And so they've actually learned like dad, Tuesday, three o'clock, whatever. Can you put, bring me here? I'm like, yep, I can do that. It's on the calendar. Yep. 
hundred percent makes sense. Um, what CRM do you use or any of the tools that you use specifically? Well, on Appfolio, I mainly use, obviously, that's, it's almost a CRM, but I use this program for my investment business. It's mainly for financial advisors. So I don't know if it would be useful for your, your listeners, mm-hmm. but it's called Wealthbox. Okay. So. Cool. Um, got it. You touched on a couple of these. You kind of um, answered some of it, but what's your favorite way to stay educated? What platforms and who do you like to listen to on those platforms? I love podcasts and I love blogs. I'm not, you know, bigger pockets. And it's just one of my favorite podcasts, you know, and um, I was honored to be on it way back when Josh Dorkin, you know, was the, um, I guess he wasn't co-host because then we'll get into argument with Brandon Turner and Josh. Okay. The host, Josh. And then, um, I also listen to a lot of non-related uh, real estate podcasts, you know, things like Planet Money is a good one. And then you can go in the deep dives. There's so many different good podcasts out there. But I would say my, the ones I most um, always listen to is probably Bigger Pockets, uh, virtually all their shows, okay, coupled with Planet Money. And then what's another one? Oh, there's one called Lifestyles Unlimited. It's out of Texas. It's like this real estate club. And there's this host called Del Wamsley, who's the founder of the company. And you know how I mentioned I like to follow people that have actually done it, that have owned, you know, 100, 500, thousands of units. This guy built this company on his own. He owns, you know, thousands of units. And it's just, it's a great podcast only when he's on. He's actually farmed it out to a couple of uh, his other employees. Mm. But when he's on there, this guy is so politically incorrect. It's just hilarious. The stuff that comes out, you're just like, ooh, I can't believe you just said that. But he gives the best real estate advice I've ever heard. He's just, wow. he's, what's he's the name so of that fascinated. one? It's called Lifestyles Unlimited. Okay. And they're out of Texas. Just look up Dell Wamsley. And, okay. but the guy is just, he's brilliant. He called, the whole downturn in 0809 up to that, he, it's really rare you find someone, but you can actually go back on his podcast before the whole financial crisis. And he basically called it. And then during the financial crisis, you can go back to his podcast and he's out there saying, you need to buy real estate now. So when no one was buying, he was just like, you need to buy. And I was like, God, this Dell saying to buy, I gotta find property. And that, that's what I started doing. But very few people during the depths of the crisis were telling you, go buy multifamily real estate. So Yeah, 100%. Um, cool. Okay. What's next for you in 2020 and beyond? Um, right now, um, my, big, my big push right now is going back to that Dale Wamsley guy. He's got this philosophy. He calls it bigger is not better. Better is better. And so... I'm focusing on better is better, which is I'm taking my existing portfolio and over the last, unfortunately I bought another property, which I shouldn't have, but I just, I couldn't pass the deal. But the whole focus now is basically optimizing the portfolio. So I've been doing a lot of CapEx in there. I'm getting the rents up to attract the right tenants. That's why I'm doing a lot of CapEx right now, you know, capital expenditures, but I'm just basically trying to optimize things. So it runs way more efficiently. You know, and, mm-hmm. and as a result of that, I mean, it's almost like 
it's not it's not helping me out in terms of lots of cash flow, but it's from a time perspective, which means I'm going to have lower maintenance calls, um, lower headaches with tenants, and as a result of that, it's going to buy me even more time. So that's kind of my my big push right now. Is better is better. One hundred percent. I like that. Better is better. Okay, cool. Um, any hobbies or random interests? Stuff you like to do when you're not doing real estate? Uh, unfortunately, I keep trying to do hobbies, but the real estate just pulls me in. So my kids, they just are out. You know, real, honestly, real estate is my hobby. It yeah. was originally it was a side hustle, and then my investment business was my primary, you know, source of earnings. And then the real estate just kind of morphed. Now it's this hobby turned into a passion and now it's my primary source of income. And now my investment business has kind of turned into my little hobby now because I'm constantly researching the market and looking for ways to add value for my clients. So love it. Good answer there. But I'm work. sorry. I'm boring. I just work all the time and, but I love my work. You know, no, I just, Corey, it's amazing. A hundred, uh, so much more than I expected even starting this podcast. The answer that I hear time and time again is that people are actually enjoying the work they're doing in real estate, which I don't think you'd hear too often that you would never hear. Someone right. say, what do you like to do for fun? When you have a W2 job, you would never hear them say, Oh, for fun. I like to do my job No, yeah. because this is so different. It's, it's taking on a different track and course and it's something you can actually control. So it's not weird. I actually get that answer probably about 50% of the time because people like what they're doing. So it's well, cool. Cause I'm always worried. Cause everyone's like work life balance. And I'm like, there's no balance. I'm just like, I love my real estate. I'm I'll mow a lawn. If I want, I'll go tinker <laughs> on something like today I'm tinkering on, you know, mortise hardware and just like getting this yep. one property finished up. And I'm like, I enjoy that. So hundred <laughs> percent. Uh, where can people learn more about you, what you're doing or get in touch? On the real estate side, go to my bigger pockets profile. Um, I also have this this little rinky dink blog called 10 to million.com. So it's 10 T E N the number two and then million.com. Mm -hmm. It's purely a passion project. There's not a single ad on there. I have no clue what I'm doing, but periodically I post, you know, uh -huh. on real estate. Uh -huh. And then, um, my investment business, if you're looking to blend, you know, traditional investments, stocks, bonds, stuff like that, and then couple that with real estate, uh, that's called retirement pilot.com and that's the website and the uh the name of the company is called structuredwealthadvisors.com sorry i threw a lot of there no, a lot of stuff great. at you but all good i've got a couple of plates spinning these days and that's where it's cool. all going so cool 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 um okay second to last question of the show if you were a millennial today let's say you were 22 23 24 coming out of college knowing everything you know now what would you do to get into the game and how would you do it? You are doing it right. Cause we were talking before the show started and you house hacked a fourplex. So that's exactly what I would do. I would find an owner occupied fourplex, FHA loan. What, what'd you get in on that? Three, three and a half percent down? Three Must and a half. Been, yeah, ridiculous, ridiculously low. Oh, credit score, what do you need? A 600, 620? <laughs> it's just like, it's insane, you know? So yeah, go out and buy a fourplex live in it, learn the trade of landlording. If you like it, go buy nine more fourplexes and house hack them. That's how I'd start it. 100%. And then if you really like it, 10 exit, start getting the big multifamily, you know? Yep. But don't do the syndication thing. Just do it on your own. Maybe get a couple of cool partners, money people. You know, you don't have to syndicate and be beholden to the SEC. People don't realize 
how much trouble. I mean, I'm a SEC financial advisor, okay? Be careful. All I'm saying is be careful syndicators out there because, oh, it's ugly. All right. Mm. <clears throat> okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. And syndicating has been, it exploded in the last three years and they haven't been through a downturn or a dip yep. yet. So that is something I was just talking to a syndicator friend of mine and I said, it's going to be really interesting to see who gets exposed or who goes bad when this all happens. Because a lot of people I feel like have been syndicating some bad deals just because they I want to get I totally agree. It's so, all about the fees. It's going to be, it's, it's fees and salesmanship, which is yep. tough because these people, you know, they've got good brands and reputations and, you know, they were, they, they, a lot of them started after 08. So they, they haven't been through that yet. And yeah. it's going to just be interesting to see how it all plays out. Yep. So, um, okay, Corey, last question of the show. We talked about it a little before mantra and concept of this group is to be value add before value ask. So is there anything right now you're working on, could use help with, or if someone just reached out trying to bring value, they would start the relationship off on the right foot instead of just asking for your time with nothing in return? I've got the perfect one. So I've got these 10 conventional loans on income properties. One was my house, okay? If there is some lender or broker out there that can come to me and say, Corey, I realize your tax situation is really difficult. No underwriter in the world can figure it out, except my commercial bankers. They love my tax returns and my records. Mm. Someone could get me some conventional loans at rates below 4%, maybe four and a half. I don't care. Get some of that 30-year fixed money. Bring it on. And so, mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Love That's it. my biggest challenge right now is finding a lender that understands investors. Is that because those loans are not... Conventional lenders, not commercial. So. Gotcha. Is that because those loans they just have higher interest rates on them right now. You're trying to bring them down. Yes. Got it. I'm basically okay. stuck. So. Got it. Okay. And Makes there's sense. a ton of equity there too. It's just hilarious. Got it. Okay. First case, I just keep paying them down. Yeah. yeah. Interest rates range from five and three quarters all the way down to maybe 4.875. I just think it's, it's just awful when I see a 10 year bond at 60 bips, you know, and that's another point. The 30 year mortgage is going to drop. The mortgage rate does not reflect the bond market right now. And so to see a 30 year, you know, 30 year fixed conventional loan at three and a half, 3.25 does not reflect the current state of the market. It should be below three right now, easily two and a half, but this hasn't played out yet. So we'll see once the, uh, the plumbing gets fixed on the loan market, we might see the 30 year drop another, you know, hundred basis points, one point. So. Okay, Corey, thank you so much for coming on. I had a lot of fun and I was taking notes all throughout this. You just cool. uh, gave a lot of good tips and tactical stuff. So those are the episodes that, that I like most. And I think most of our listeners like uh, as well. So thank you again for coming on. Uh, any, any parting words or call to action before we hop off? Yes, go find a fourplex and house hack it. Do it today. <laughs> uh, I, I wish I knew that when I was your age. <laughs> yep. Couldn't agree more. That's great advice. Well, Corey, thank you so much again for coming on and taking some time to do this. Uh, best of luck in 2020 and beyond. It's, uh, it's fun to watch and read about your journey. All right. Thank you. 
Hey, you millennial millionaire, do you want more? Then head to the Millennial Millionaires Through Real Estate Facebook group, where there are tons of step-by-step walkthroughs, tools, templates, and free networking to help you achieve financial freedom through real estate. And if you want Jonathan to help you personally reach your goals, then feel free to set up a one-on-one call in the link below or message him on any social media platform and apply to, well, work with Jonathan.